Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. All right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. As always, I am your host, George Dvorsky, and we have an excellent show lined up for this week, and this week being the week of December the 12th, 2011. I'm going to just briefly talk again about uh, CrossFit and my recent uh, regimen in terms of what I've, been, what I've been doing to build some strength. Then turning to some, uh, some cognitive science issues, asking the question, should ecstasy be used to treat autism? And the other question being, will cognitive enhancement result in too many negative side effects? Then I'm going to play an excerpt from a recent Radiolabs episode called Loops, which puts into question the degree to which we think we have free will. Then I'm going to touch upon a recent interview that H Plus Magazine did with the nanotechnologist Eric Drexler, who's back in the news again, which is very exciting. I'm going to review very briefly or highlight some of the, uh, uh, the key points from a new paper uh, by Keith Wiley on the Fermi Paradox, the, par- the paper entitled The Fermi Paradox, Self-Replicating Probes and the Interstellar Transportation Bandwidth. I'll also touch upon a recent paper of my own that's just uh, just about ready for publication at the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. Also going to be discussing whether or not we should genetically modify mosquitoes to combat malaria and to combat mosquito populations themselves. And lastly, we'll end the show with a bit of an instructional, potentially, how to engineer a zombie virus. Stay tuned for that. Okay. CrossFit, as promised. I've changed up my routine a little bit over the last, let's say, two to three months or so in that I've been focusing a little bit more on the strength component, uh, which is basically I'm doing that outside of the regular CrossFit programming, which sees you go in there and work in a group environment and there's a workout of the day posted. And Virtually every workout tends to have a certain intensity to it and uh, certainly uh, uh, work that you do to improve your cardiovascular uh, ability and your metabolic conditioning. And I'm trying to ease off on that a little bit and focus these days on strength, which I think is one of my uh, the areas in which I could use the most amount of improvement. And it's also one that jibes more philosophically with my uh, reasoning for for even doing this in the first place, which is to uh, it's this is part of my life extension strategy that I do believe that strength is a key component to longevity. So I do want to make sure that uh, I'm you know working on my strength at any given time. So here's what I've been doing, and I do this typically about twice a week. So I don't it's not not crazy in terms of the uh, the degree to which I do this. Sometimes I, don't, I only do it once a week. But there are three basic lifts that you can do uh, uh, given, uh, let's say, certain time constraints or given that you want to approach certain parts of your body. That I mean, the, the whole idea of going to a gym in the past and hitting the weights and do, doing isolation movements, let's say bicep curls or working on legs specifically for one day and so on, 
definitely not necessarily the way to go. That, that basically, if you can hit certain lifts that have compound movement uh, requirements, meaning that you're utilizing more than just simply one part of your body or one particular uh, muscle group, that you're you're getting um, uh, you want you want basically compound movements. So uh, to that end, there are three basic lifts that I am that I do when I do my strength days, uh, and they are the back squat the uh, bench press, and the deadlift. And uh, for those who don't know what those are, I'll just briefly explain it. Uh, the back squat is when you take the bar with a very decent amount of weight and uh, you put it just behind your neck, so kind of like on the back of your shoulders, and you then do a full squat. And you, your squat has to break 90 degrees or it's just you're just not working hard enough. And then you got to bring it right back up to standing. So that's a back squat. And then uh, the bench press, uh, I'm sure you know that, you're basically on your back and you're just um, taking the bar and you're extending it from chest level to full extension of your arms upward. And the deadlift is the, uh, the heaviest lift you're ever going to do, and that is just simply taking a, uh, a rather significant weight from the ground and just simply lifting it up such that you're standing straight. So it's still hanging, it's, just, it's still hanging from your arms, but there's no, you're not like uh, cleaning it or anything like that. So that's why it tends to be uh, the most uh, in, intense, that, that's the heaviest lift that you'll ever do uh, at, in Olympic weightlifting. So those are the three movements that I do. And how I break it down is I do, uh, I have to calculate uh, my one rep max. So uh, basically, what's the most, what's the heaviest back squat I can do? What's the heaviest bench press I can do? And so on. Take that number, your maximum, and you want to do reps of it at 65%, 75%, and 85%. So for the back squat, for example, uh, my my max back squat is 265 pounds. So I do 65% of that, and I do five lifts. Take a quick break. Then I add a few uh, weights to bring it up to my 75% of my one rep max, and I do five more. And then I do 85% of my one rep max. So now we're getting pretty close to, you know, what the, the most that you can actually lift. And you go until failure. And failure is very important in uh, strength workouts. Uh, it's, it, it might sound like a negative uh, and that you don't want to hit failure. But uh, when it comes to uh, weightlifting and building strength, it's very good to max out your muscles that way. And uh, then you repeat that with a bench press and the deadlift. So, again, the, the recipe being, again, um, 65, 75, and 85 percent of your one rep max, uh, and you can. Well, I mean, lifts of five per, five uh, per set are are fine. You could do ten for the bench presses. I wouldn't argue against that. And of course, uh, the key though being that for your third set, for your very heavy set, you want to go until you can't go anymore. And I was very happy today because uh, today I did this routine uh, and um, kind of pushed a little bit with the deadlifts, and I think I went more than 85 percent. I just wanted to boost some of my confidence uh, again uh, in terms of how much I can lift and I, I did lift today 365 pounds and uh, it's significant for me because I have a goal of trying to do a 400 pound deadlift my 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 PR for that is 385 pounds so that's 20 pounds below the max so I think that I'm definitely approaching that territory once again and I've got that target right now uh, of 400 pounds. With, I'd like to do that within the next two to three months if I can. I'm just slowly working my way and building my way to, to do that. And that'd be nice. The other mile, the other goal I have set for myself over the next three months, and goals are important. I mean, uh, I think uh, there has to be kind of a focus towards what you're working, uh, what you're working on, and give you give you give yourself a bit of purpose for being at the gym outside of just uh, sheer fitness. You want to, I guess, have some numbers that you'd like to hit. 
So the 400 pound deadlift, I would also love to be able to lift 200 pounds above my head. I've never actually done that. Um, my arms tend to be kind of uh, the weakest link in the chain for me. I have shoulder mobility issues as well. But I have lifted 175 over my head. I think I definitely have a 185. I'm quite sure I have that right now. The question is, can I do 200 uh, in a clean and jerk? And then I have a non-strength related goal, and that is I'd like to once again hit a sub-19 minute 5,000 meter row on the Concept 2 rowers. So that's one area in which I do work on my cardio, and even a bit of core strength, because if those of you who have ever hit a rower, you know it's, it's, you have to be, your core has to be engaged uh, pretty much the whole time. And a, a 5,000 meter row, that's approximately 20 minutes, and uh, that's a, a very intense and psychologically demanding 20 minutes. And I'd like to be able to do that, though, uh, under 19 minutes. I've done it once before. I'd like to be able to, to hit it again. So that's uh, my bit of uh, uh, my two cents on uh, strength work. And uh, it's, it's worked for me, and I do see progress. And uh, that uh, I'll keep you guys posted and let you know if I should come close to or surpassing some of my PRs. All right, shifting gears now to some neuroscience and some cognitive science. And the first... The first article that I'd like to address is um, two subjects that I'm very uh, interested in. Obviously, cognitive enhancement, uh, or just simply the whole idea of designer psychologies and altering our psychological modalities, and autism, of course. And there was a uh, an article recently published. Uh, maybe not an article. It was uh, one second here while I call it up. It was a request for proposals uh, by MAPS. And they essentially ask the question, can ecstasy be used to treat autism? And here is the request for proposal blurbage. Quote, we are welcoming proposals for a MAPS-sponsored pilot study of MDMA for Asperger's syndrome and autism spectrum disorders from interested researchers until December the 16th. A number of people with high-functioning autism and Asperger's syndrome have reported improvements after taking MDMA outside of research contexts. MDMA shows promise for treating autism spectrum disorders since the effects of MDNA increase empathy and enhancement and enhanced communications are precisely the abilities that autism tends to degrade. MAPS is offering a grant of $10,000 for protocol development expenses for this pilot study. We have prepared a request for proposals for researchers based in the U.S. We're looking for an established research team that would also have a good chance of obtaining funds from research from other grant agencies, as autism research is currently a well-funded field, etc., etc., end quote. And it definitely does seem like a good match. Autism, by definition, is a communications disorder. It's a social communications disorder where there are impairments, uh, and I'll put those impairments in scare quotes, because that's an impairment has to be viewed through the lens uh, of, uh, the, I guess, the neurotypical frame. Uh, so that social communication is a problem. So things like empathy and uh, you know that kind of interpersonal connection with others that's that tends to be lacking, and that's the, the typical autism or Asperger's condition. And meanwhile, MDMA, which is the active component in ecstasy, uh, it 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 actually works to uh, it's not like a, it's not a drug to get to you know to get uh, to, uh, to you know get uh, it's not like an hallucinatory drug or uh, it, it doesn't for example uh, have the same effects like marijuana does which basically is kind of like a sensory enhancement uh, drug. What MDMA does is it really it 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 tickles those parts of the brain that are responsible for things like your social connection 
and your empathy, uh, even verbal communication skills and so on. And it enhances those for the, for the, uh, for the duration that you are, uh, being affected by MDMA. So it seemed to be a good match that here you have, uh, uh people with, uh, a social, social communication disorder taking a drug that actually, uh, kind of resolves the problem that maybe makes you wonder if there, if, if the end result is something that would approximate, uh, neurotypicality in terms of social communication skills. And I think that's kind of a fascinating part about this study would be, well, what, what, do, what is the kind of end result? I would imagine it's going to base from person, it's going to change based on person to person. But ultimately, I would like to know, uh, what the mind, what the mind state is of, uh, of a, let's say a kid on Asperger's or an adult with autism, uh, what it would make them feel like. Now, a couple of things though I will say about this. MDMA is quite unfortunately a rather nasty neurotoxin. And we know that, uh, more and more research is showing that long-term use is problematic, that it buggers up, uh, your production of serotonin, kind of keeps it, uh, keeps it down at, uh, lower than baseline levels. So if actually, basically what you're doing is through prolonged use of MDMA, you risk suffering from, uh, depression, uh, persistent kinds of depressions and mood disorders and so on. So, uh, that's, uh, that's not funny business. And, uh, I think the idea of actually treating uh, treating, let's say, autistic uh, people with this, uh, at, at the face of it, seems to me like a very bad idea. That uh, only because MDMA has long-term side effects. I think the the, the principle is sound in terms of what they're trying to do, but uh, as long as we have the evidence to support the fact that there, it's a, the neurotoxicity of MDMA is as bad as we think it is, it should probably not bugger up uh, their um, uh, their brains any any uh, any more than we need to. And secondly. We also have to seriously consider whether or not we want to treat autism and Asperger's in this way. And like I've argued before, that autism needs to be understood under the larger lens of the whole uh, uh, frame of neurodiversity and needs to be better appreciated as an alternative psychological modality. So I think maybe straying away from the language of treating autism uh, needs to kind of, I think, start to gain uh, more currency and more acceptability. Now, that said, though, uh, clearly, the benefit of using ecstasy for such a purpose, and again, it's it's long-term effects notwithstanding, it could allow those with autism to choose when and when they do not want to have a more neurotypical experience. And this is the part about the part about it that I love. For me, it's all about uh, cognitive liberty and the right to modify your mind and your thought processes as you see fit. And the neat thing about MDMA is obviously you can choose when and when you do not want to use it. So in this case, if a, if a kid with, a, or an adult rather, with, um, uh, with autism wants to kind of shut down the, uh, the autistic frame, they can take some MDMA and maybe have that enhanced uh, social communication aspect. And maybe they find that that's kind of uh, not not the way they want want to always be. That they 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 like themselves as, let's say, uh, somebody with Asperger's. That they can then obviously go off of it and be that kind of um, uh, have that kind of mind state that they're desiring. So again, it's all about the whole idea behind the designer psychology's ideas that control that you have. It can be even a context specific sort of a thing. So depending on what you're doing and who you're dealing with, you can change the way your your mind works. And I think that's pretty profound. So uh, in that sense, uh, this does fit nicely with my idea of designer psychologies and the ability to choose these contextually appropriate cognitive modalities. Now, along similar lines, um, in terms of changing brain state and brain function, 
Another question that was asked recently was, will cognitive enhancement result in too many negative side effects? And this is something I've thought about for years, and I'm not surprised that it's starting to kind of get a bit more attention. And there was a paper published in Current Directions in Psychological Science, and that's a journal of the Association for Psychological Science. And uh, a, num a number of uh, uh, scientists are claiming that there are, in fact, limits to human intelligence and that any increases in thinking ability are likely to involve trade-offs. I would like to now quote from the article. Quote, Drugs like Ritalin and amphetamines help people pay better attention, but they often only help people with lower baseline abilities. People who don't have trouble paying attention in the first place can actually perform worse when they take attention-enhancing drugs. That suggests there is some kind of upper limit to how much people can or should pay attention. This makes sense if you think about a focused task like driving, where you have to pay attention, but to the right things, which may be changing all the time. If your attention is focused on a shiny billboard or changing the channel on the radio, you're going to have problems. It may seem like a good thing to have better memory, but people with excessively vivid memories have a difficult life. Memory is a double-edged sword. In post-traumatic stress disorder, a person can't stop remembering some awful episode. If something bad happens, you want to be able to forget it and move on. Even increasing general intelligence can cause problems. There is a, site, a study cited of Ashkenazi Jews who have an average IQ much higher than the general European population. This is apparently because of evolutionary selection for intelligence in the last 2,000 years. But at the same time, Ashkenazi Jews have been plagued by inherited diseases like Tay-Sachs disease that affect the nervous system. It may be that the increase in brain power has caused an increase in disease. Given all these trade-offs that emerge when you make people feel better at thinking, it's unlikely that there will ever be a supermind. If you have a specific task that requires more memory or more speed or more accuracy or whatever, then you could potentially take an enhancer that increases your capacity for that task. But it would be wrong to think that this is going to improve your abilities all across the board. End quote. Okay, lots of things to say about this. Um, it's... It's, what's nice about it, this article as well is it touches upon two main areas when it comes to human intelligence. One is it understands that we evolved uh, to be as smart as we are now, but no smarter. And there are some very good reasons for this. Now, it's true that our current state of intelligence, it may be at a certain happy equilibrium point. But again, that has to be understood within the context of adaptability to our prior Paleolithic existence, in which we evolved as foragers and hunters. And, as the article correctly asserts, human cognition is also limited on account of hard biological limits, like cranial size. Moreover, there's only so much computation that nature can do with a chunk of biological matter that's roughly the size of a grapefruit. Looking ahead to the transhuman future, and given the potential for assistive technologies, for example, things like nanotechnology, brain pacemakers, artificial neurons, even whole brain transfer, it's quite possible that we'll be able to radically modify the way in which the brain operates. So these scientists are basically saying that, look, you know, we evolved certain hard limits when it comes to intelligence. We didn't get any smarter because there's certain uh, you know, constraints that prevent us from doing so. And, and I, I tend to agree. Uh, for example, I mean, uh, brain size and, and our brain processing power may only be uh, where it is now because the, the uh, it, 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 was, it took too much energy to, let's say, run a brain that is more, uh, more powerful. 
uh, or similarly, um, our brains are, are I, I believe, proportionately larger uh, for the amongst great apes. So it's harder for the females uh, of primates to give birth to large-brained uh, babies. Uh, that's obviously really these, we're dealing with again biological limits. That's why that's why we're not any smarter than we are. Um, but now that that being said, though, that doesn't mean that we can't use uh, let's say uh, transhuman type technologies and enhancement technologies to uh, take the uh, the biological brain that we evolved that we evolved and then work to enhance that. So that's not necessarily a hard limit. I mean, I think evolution faced hard limits, but uh, intelligent. Um, manipulation by ourselves may not face as those types of limits. Now, back to the trade-offs issue, and that's a very pertinent one. Now, it's been noted that imperfect memory may be a blessing in disguise, and that those people who have perfect recall, for example, they live in a kind of virtual hell, unable to shake the constant stream of memories. I've even heard cases of people, and this is a very rare condition where you do have that absolutely perfect memory, that their memory is so perfect that they actually have troubles um, re um, uh, determining determining whether or not they're actually witnessing the present moment or whether they're witnessing a, uh, a memory flashback. And how bizarre is that? Now, it's also been well documented that many eccentrics and geniuses suffer from these kinds of uh, rather attendant psychological problems, things like OCD, paranoia, schizophrenia, and so on. Now, we may have evolved to our current state of intelligence and no further on a account of the onset of various maladaptive functioning impairments. So in other words, if you have an IQ of, let's say, 145, 150, sure, that's great. Or if you have an amazing memory, that's great. But the, the trade-off there is that you're kind of uh, wonky in another element. So let's take uh, John Nash, for example, as, as highlighted in the movie Beautiful Mind. Uh, while he was an incredible mathematician and a logician, uh, at the same time, his, his ability to see patterns... Uh, and make sense of patterns was kind of obviously was very uh, uh, was 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 uh, highly accentuated. He was very much gifted that way, but at the same time, it, it also in conjunction with schizophrenia, it uh, caused him to see patterns and it caused him to see other things that weren't necessarily there. And that one could say that in a state of nature, that's maladaptive and may not have lent itself toward um, furthering that trait in the species. So. Uh, Basically, uh, we like I mentioned earlier, we we evolved as smart as we needed to be because be, being any smarter, the trade-offs were too um, deleterious. So, uh, if this is the case, then we need to seriously look more deeply into this, especially at the dawn of bona fide cognitive enhancement. Now, my hope, though, and my expectation is, is that we will we'll still be able to engage in cognitive enhancement. I don't think this is a deal breaker. But we're going to have to go about it perhaps with some tempered expectations. So, for example, we'll have to work to alleviate the side effects of increased intelligence and memory. So we have to learn to identify them, treat them, deal with them, hopefully maybe even eradicate them if there should be some kinds of side effects. If we can't do that or if we can't do that to the degree that we want to, we have to learn to accept perhaps and adapt to having uh, alternative psychological modalities. So basically, even, you know, even if those side effects might look like impairment when assessed through the neurotypical lens. So what we might consider an impairment today may not be an impairment tomorrow. And we have to basically learn to accept the changes that happen to our human psychology on account of higher IQ 
or increased memory or whatever it might be that we're working to enhance. And you know what? And in some cases, maybe the side effects or the uh, the trade-offs are so severe and so unwanted that we'll have to forego certain types of enhancement altogether. We you don't we don't know these. This is uncharted territory. And uh, we have to kind of go about this as obviously in a responsible way and make sure that ultimately at the end of the day, we are happy, satisfied, productive, uh, and engaged individuals, whether we are uh, at human baseline as we are today or whether we are in a transhuman state. So, yeah, those are some interesting questions, uh, both in terms of the uh, uh, ecstasy and uh, Asperger's and uh, the question as to will cognitive enhancement result in many negative side effects. And, of course, these sorts of, these sorts of issues will appear with more and more regularity as time passes. I'm a big fan of the NPR radio show, podcast show, Radio Labs, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with that show. For those of you who are not, I highly recommend that you uh, subscribe to Radio Labs. It, uh, it tends to be uh, science-based, um, but what is particularly compelling about it, aside from the brilliant editing uh, and production values that uh, that uh, that's part of the that's an indelible part of the show. Uh, there's also this uh, unbelievable human factor that they bring to it. These are some um, they bring uh, some unbelievably compelling stories uh, into the show, and uh, I never miss an episode. And there was one episode in particular from a couple of weeks back called Loops, and there was a segment in there that really caught my attention and really got me thinking. And uh, it had to do with uh, a condition that uh, basically it's a kind of a temporary amnesia. And the amnesia only really lasts about a day or two, but uh, in, in what it what it does for the person suffering from it is uh, you're it, it's uh, kind of like that memento type uh, type deal where you cannot form new memories. You have you you have kind of like a, a set of core long term memories that you can so constantly you know who you are, uh, you have a sense of your history, but you can't form new memories. And uh, basically, every 90 seconds or so to every two minutes or so, that's about as this kind of like I think what's referred to as kind of like your 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 current storage 
uh, your, like your ongoing uh, moment, momentary, momentary memory that you kind of hold in the buffer before it gets translated to um, kind of this intermediate and long-term memory. It kind of resets. Um, so one can actually make a strong case, actually, just as an aside, that what we call the present moment, the now, is about a 90-second uh, frame. I kind of find that interesting, actually. Well, anyways, um, I'm going to play... I'm going to play the entire segment, which is about 10 minutes long. So sit back a little bit and enjoy this. It's really quite remarkable, but this this particular story. And uh, once it's done, I'll kind of uh, give my little my my two cents as to what my takeaway from it was. So listen to this. This is again from the Radio Labs episode Loops. So where where are you guys? What, what? we're in San Francisco. You're in San Francisco. Oh, so you're yeah. not in Texas. No, just sounds like we're in Texas. Yeah, she's from Texas. So, oh, like, can you guys actually just, uh, if you don't mind, introduce yourself so we know just we have your oh. name and all that? Sure. I'm Mary Sue Campbell. I live in Nevada, California, and my daughter Christine is 30 years old. I live in San Francisco, um, and I was raised in Nevada in the house that said incident <laughs> happened. At, so, shall we begin? Okay. Tell me the begin how the story starts from well, the beginning. I think I, 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 it was odd. Christine actually called me Tuesday morning about ten o'clock, and just said, "Oh, what are you doing, Mom?" And I said, "Oh, I'm just gonna go out in the yard and do some yard work and run some errands." And she said, "Well, you ought to do the yard work early because it's going to be hot today." Oh, uh, so we're in the, we're in the summertime. It was summertime. Yeah, it was, it was August, August, yeah. August twenty fourth, and apparently, what ten minutes later, about half an hour, half later, hour yeah. later. She said I called her. She had left me a voicemail, something like, hey, Christine, it's mom. Something's something's not right. Something's wrong. I need you to call me back. So I gave her a call back, and and she said, something about the house isn't right. There's Things look weird in here. Well, what's weird? What, what are you talking about? And then she said, well, I'm looking at the calendar, and it says August 2010. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> She's like, well, that's not right. And I said, well, yes, it is. It's August 24th, 2010. And as soon as I said that out loud, I grabbed my purse to leave. Oh, my God, she's had a stroke. That was my my, my first reaction. And, um, oh, that makes me feel emotional. <laughs> and so... Christine says she walked out of her house to the car, keeping her mom on the phone. What else do you see? I'm just trying to keep her talking to me. All the while, her mom's telling her one thing after another just doesn't look right. She says there's a strange black truck on the driveway, which is the truck that belongs to her boyfriend that has been parked there for 10 years. (laughs) So I'm, of course, increasingly, I mean, I'm just freaking out at this point. So she hangs up with her mom and then calls the paramedics. And a half hour later, Christine arrives at the hospital. By the time I walked in, she had been there for five or ten minutes at the most. And as soon as I walked in, the doctor greeted me and said... I said, uh... uh this is her doctor, Jonathan Vallejos. Christine, it's immediately evident it's not a stroke, not an infection. That's that's a huge relief. But I said... Uh, your mother has, has transient global amnesia. Transient global <laughs> Transient global... Dude, how did those words hit you? I'll be honest with you. I had no idea what that meant. I think the word I heard the most was amnesia. Your mother has lost her ability to form new memories. I mean, she can't remember. But... He said it's not going to last forever. Um... It usually lasts between 1 and 24 hours, and we're not sure what causes it. And it's at this point where the story goes from something kind of frightening to something a little more surreal. Yeah, so 
when I came in... Um, Her mother is sitting up in bed? She's a smiler. <laughs> and she immediately started asking questions. Okay, so what's the date? And I said, well, it's Tuesday, August 24th. And, of course, we have a video on YouTube of this. My birthday is already passed? Yep. How do you remember if I remember that? I'm trying to remember the last date I remember. I don't remember my birthday. Yeah. We, we hung out. You came over to my house, and we watched a video that I made for you when I was in Texas. And all of your sisters and some of your brothers said happy birthday to you on the video. Yeah, but we still have the video, so you can watch it again. But you're going to remember eventually. They say it's just temporary. Where was it? Was it home? Did I you were at home. Yep, you were at home doing some gardening, and you called me, and you were feeling confused. So we called the paramedics, had them come and get you, and then we came here. We did a bunch of tests on you. Okay, so what's the date? August 24th. It's Tuesday. I'm trying to remember the last date I remember. I mean, I don't remember my birthday. Just you don't remember recently. your birthday, yeah. Yeah. That must have just been recently. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Now, you may have missed it, but this conversation they're having just started over. So it's August. Mm -hmm. Because every 90 seconds, Mary Sue's memory resets. August 24th. But what's strange is the repetition. Like, we started that last clip you heard with her saying this. I'm trying to remember the last date I remember. 90 seconds later, after her memory resets, she says... I'm trying to remember the last date I remember. 90 seconds later... I'm trying to remember the last date I remember. And as you watch this video for a few minutes, you realize what's happening here is that Mary Sue... You remember what day of the week it is? No. ...is in a loop. And it goes like this. First, the date. Okay, so what's the date? August 24th. She then responds in almost the same way every time. My birthday is already passed? Yeah. She's missed her birthday. It's already at my birthday? Yep. Darn. And every time she says that, darn, in exactly the same way. Like if you fast forward. It's already past my birthday though? Yep. Oh, darn. She must enjoy her birthday quite a bit. You're going to remember it eventually. <laughs> then she laughs. What happened? Then they recap. You were working in the garden, and you gave me a call. Christine explains the whole thing, and it's usually when she says the word paramedics. So we called the paramedics. Right there. And had them come and pick you up. That Mary Sue's eyes get really wide in this look of sheer, <laughs> utter disbelief. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that creepy? I mean, every it, single and time that I watched over and over. it. You say that over and over. You say, isn't that creepy? Say, this is creepy. I know. 90 seconds later. This is so creepy. 90 seconds later. This is so creepy. And it's often at this point, right after creepy, that she resets. Okay, so I don't know what day I'm Tuesday. Like somebody put it on rewind. Over and over no. and over again. After my birthday? Yes. I'd repeated the birthday so much that yes, the nurse apparently was Actually, behind me mouthing the words. Yeah. Oh, did I miss <laughs> my birthday? Yeah. Girl, it's like Groundhog's Day in here. <laughs> yep, Groundhog's Day. This is like every two minutes. We're doing a loop. Yes, the same thing. Yes, we do that. We have had the same conversation over and over again every two minutes for the last two and a half hours. Two and a half hours? Yes. Get out of here. No. Same thing. Same thing. Yeah, we can't seem to talk about anything else. <laughs> that is what we're talking about today. What day of the week is it? Tuesday, August twenty fourth. You didn't miss it. You were there. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Watching it, I wanted to slap me. 
you know? I wanted to reach <laughs> out and slap me and say, damn it, I just told you that. For the record, but, yeah. I would never slap no, my mother. No, she would not. No, she would not. Okay, so our big question here is, uh, clearly this is a person who's lost her memory. Yeah. But why would her behavior from one cycle to the next be so precisely and consistently the same? I mean, sometimes exactly the same. Yeah, why? I, I think what it is is one of the things the nurses said is that when you have something like this, your true self comes out. Huh. You're true. The word true is interesting. So yeah. is that yeah. what we're seeing on that video is that you're a true person, your true self? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. my mom through and through right there. I mean, she's what Christine means is not the repetition, but that her mom keeps asking so many questions. She's inquisitive. She just wants to know what's going yeah. on with with all, you know, across the board. I love problems. I love puzzles. Are and, you like a Sudoku fiend? You know, I am. I am. I hate to admit this. Oh, God. <laughs> I play escape room games on the Internet. Escape room? What are those? They're stupid little games where they have little hidden pixels that you find you're, you're stuck in a room and you have to get out. You've got to find the key to the door. And there's all these little hidden places. Oh, that's just the perfect metaphor then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was my own escape room. <laughs> remember what day of the week it is? No. It's Tuesday. But there's a different way of seeing this. First of all, Jonathan Vlahos, that ER doctor who's seen a bunch of these cases... He said, well, that puzzler instinct, that's not just Mary Sue. What everybody does is struggle over and over again with where am I and when am I? It's just the brain in survival mode. And another thing that everybody does, and he's seen about six of these patients so far, is that everybody, not just Mary Sue, but everybody, becomes a broken record right down to the the phrasing of the sentences. Which creeps him out a little bit. It, it, you know, it makes the, the brain seem a little bit more like um, a machine. You know, you give the machine the exact same set of inputs. Every 90 seconds, give it the same doctor, the same hospital room, same beeping machines. And see if the output ever varies. And it doesn't. It almost seems like the patient uh, has no free will. And so sometimes, in the back of his head, he thinks... God, if I had that condition and someone videotaped me? I would love to see uh, see my own tape. Why? You know, I think uh, I, I want to see, could, could I somehow escape the loop? Huh. Or, or would, I, would I end up <laughs> end up with the rest of us? Now, thankfully, according to Jonathan, what normally happens in this condition is that as time goes on, that 90-second loop starts to slowly expand. You know, it's actually more like two minutes or three minutes. Eventually, four minutes. Now it's five minutes. And for Mary Sue, after a few hours, as her loop got longer and longer, her old memories started to creep back in. By that evening, she was remembering up until, um, like, that Sunday. A few hours later, her memory began to extend into Monday morning. And by the time we left the hospital, she remembered Monday night. And then, finally... Shall we begin? Okay. Tell me the begin- how this story starts. From well, the beginning. I think I, I, I... It was odd. Christine actually called me Tuesday morning about 10 o'clock and just said, Oh, what are you doing, Mom? And apparently, what, 10 minutes later, half an hour later... So there you have it. Fascinating stuff. And uh, I really like how uh, in the episode they really brought up some 
interesting, uh, or they they use some rather interesting descriptors such as uh, creepy and uh, even spooky, because that's certainly uh, how I felt when I listened to that uh, for the first time. And what, and, and, and as well, and they did address this in the segment, is it really does question the degree to which we think we have free will. And as the one doctor commented, it really kind of shows how there's a mechanistic aspect to the brain that we're perhaps underestimating. So how fascinating is it that given uh, a kind of a reset, if you will, of your short-term memory and a complete disorientation as to where you are and how you got there and what's going on, that you go through a kind of routine, if you will, a kind of, uh, or as, as we saw in this, in this, or we heard in this segment, a kind of, you're going through this kind of a loop. But what was really super eerie about it was the extreme precision with which uh, the woman in particular asked the same sets of questions. Even the tone of her voice was almost identical each time. The same use of words and phrases. And it it really, it, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm, I've done some writing and thinking about free will. It's, it's not my, my expertise. I'm not a specialist in, in that particular, uh, that particular area because there's so much neuroscience involved in it. And there's also so much philosophy involved in it as well. It's a very daunting area. But if I was to kind of do my armchair evaluation of the whole question of whether or not we have free will or not, particularly, you know, after listening to an episode like that, I, I'm not willing to say that we have no free will at all. But I'm certainly thinking more and more these days that we have less free will by a, an order of magnitude than we think we do. That given any, any con, like this, obviously this was a very specific context of disorientation. But if we are always within a certain context. Like I'm within a context right now of speaking into a microphone, trying to recount this episode and trying to kind of add some commentary to it. If, for example, we were to run this tape, uh, let's say a thousand times or a million times uh, differently r- from this moment onward, given the, my current brain state, how, wh- what degree to variability could I expect to experience? Or if I could, let's say, view a thousand iterations of this particular uh, uh, broadcast that I'm, that I'm putting together right now. Now, of course, quantum theory and uh, many world um, Hypothesis would suggest that there will be a certain degree of variability, a certain degree of variability each time, just simply based on the uh, the, the proposition that um, that in an infinite universe you'll have all these all these sorts of different uh, probability sets branch off from one another. So that's kind of that's what I meant when I said that there tend to be kind of like philosophical issues here, uh, even cosmological, metaphysical issues here when it comes to free will. But looking at it perhaps more neurologically, one would. And, 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 and in consideration of this episode, one potentially could make the conclusion that, well, if you were to run this tape a thousand times, it would be identical. That why would I, why would there be any variation in terms of what I'm saying to you right now? In the same way that there was no variation in what this woman was saying every time her, her memory uh, clock kind of reset. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we like to think that we are these kinds of fuzzy, organic, freewheeling entities that make our way through time and space. But you, you listen to something like this and you realize, you know, we are, we're, we are machines. We're robots. And we have these computers in our head that are crunching away, you know, based, you know, I'm sure based on certain um, types of algorithms that are in there and based on you know, probab- probabilistic kinds of uh, uh, processes uh, such as Bayesian types of um, assessments and so on. 
and that uh, that the kind of machinations that happen behind the hood that we're not privy to uh, result in a kind of similar or, or rather or rather a a, uh, a guided um, set of instructions as we move forward, and that our conscious experience though thinks that it's uh, making decisions, it thinks that it has free will, but it's largely a rather grand illusion. And this episode certainly, I think, would, uh, and this condition uh, would certainly indicate that that might be the case. So clearly, I think for those scientists and even philosophers who are interested in free will and in the subject, must certainly look into this kind of amnesia, look into that condition, and start to ask some hard questions as to what's actually happening. Why would this woman go through such a specific loop, uh, seemingly, you know, ad infinitum? Uh, awesome, bizarre stuff. Fascinating. I just want to very briefly talk about Eric Drexler because he's back in the news again, and uh, which is, makes me happy because he's one of uh, my favorite technologists and futurists, and uh, I think uh, one of the most important thinkers of the late 20th century as well, particularly for his 19, early 1980s book, Engines of Creation, in which he largely uh, set the stage for what we now refer to as uh, molecular nanotechnology. And uh, he has a book coming up, which I can't wait to read, called Radical Abundance. 
which for those of you who are tapped into the uh, the whole um, nano conversation and even uh, the certain kind of uh, futurist conversations uh, in terms of what uh, the next stage of production will be like in terms of manufacturing and engineering is that uh, there will be a kind of uh, ubiquity of manufacturing and accessibility to uh, to product uh, to, to, to to production of goods that uh, will kind of uh, throw the current uh, you know uh, the current model on its head so there's going to be a new kind of industrial revolution if you will or at least a similar kind of uh, revolution in terms of uh, how items will be produced and what I'm trying to get at here in a rambling sort of a way is the onset of fabricators or molecular assemblers in which we can kind of print and produce our own objects, our own devices uh, from our own desktops, from our own, ho from our own homes. That's how radical this, uh, this technology could be. And that's why Drexler calls it radical abundance because uh, basically uh, scarcity in the kind of way that we experience it today when it comes to goods – uh, and products uh, maybe a thing of, will eventually become a thing of the past. So uh, Paul Raven, um, f on behalf of H Plus Magazine, he recently interviewed Eric Drexler. And uh, I do recommend you read the entire interview, but I'm just going to uh, go over one question and one answer and uh, leave it at that. And I, direct you, and I can direct you to the, uh, the article uh, through my blog. So Paul Raven asks, quote, it's been 18 years since your last book was published. What are the most significant shifts since then with respect to the capability for atomic precision manufacture? To which Eric Drexler responds, quote, As I discussed in my Oxford talk, my analysis of technologies in this area is based on the exploratory engineering approach, which tells us something about the boundaries of technology based on limits set by physical law. Because physical law is timeless, exploratory engineering methods can yield durable insights. The ongoing development of atomically precise technologies has expanded in the general direction I'd outlined, but with the invention of unanticipated methods, what might be called expected surprises. There's been extensive progress in atomically precise fabrication, and it's accelerating. A leading area has been capabilities based on biomolecular engineering and related atomically precise engineering technologies. Protein engineering, structural DNA nanotechnology, and peptoid research are areas where I've been closely following developments and engaging with experimental research communities. I should mention, though, that the APM production systems I described in my talk would look a lot like desktop factories. Not mushy stuff like what you see in biotechnology, but boxes full of machinery a lot more like what you see in 3D printers cartridges of materials, programmable mechanisms moving back and forth to put bits of material in place, and so on. There are enormous differences, of course, in cost, throughput, materials, product quality, and so on. End quote. So as you can see here, Drexler has replaced the term molecular manufacturing with the term atomically precise manufacturing. It's kind of an interesting change, so we're going to have to, I think, adjust our vernacular here a little bit. Atomically precise manufacturing. I kind of like that. And I also like this term that introduced uh, uh, expected surprises. And uh, I like because that, that obviously not only applies to the development of uh, nanotechnology, but to basically any kind of technology, is you should probably go about the development of any technology with the uh, anticipation that there will be, quote, expected surprises, particularly in ways in which um, technologies have convergent effects with other technologies that are unanticipated. So again, check that whole article out in H Plus magazine. 
Now, uh, shifting to SETI studies, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and the Fermi problem. Really cool new paper put out by Keith B. Wiley, entitled The Fermi Paradox, Self-Replicating Probes, and the Interstellar Transportation Bandwidth. And I'm delighted to see this paper because he is taking the whole issue of von Neumann probes very seriously. Von Neumann probe being self-replicating probes that would uh, potentially populate the galaxy, uh, would pepper the galaxy in relatively little amount of time. All it would require is for a sufficiently advanced civilization uh, with the requisite technologies to create a von Neumann probe. What a probe would be, essentially, uh, it would obviously have to involve some pretty sophisticated technologies, technologies that we clearly don't have yet. So this is still speculative. But the probe would essentially have a, obviously it would need a propulsion sort of a system to get from point A to point B. And once it arrives at point B, it would uh, basically recreate itself. So, we, it, would also, so it, would, it would require a kind of a, a, a level of nanotechnology, as described in the previous segment, a kind of uh, to reassemble itself, so make a duplicate of itself. And obviously now that you've got this happening, the, the potential for exponential copying uh, is obviously uh, the key factor here. Because you could just send out one probe or let's say several probes and they find some uh, interesting planets or, uh, or find some, um, uh, some interesting solar systems from which then uh, it, they branch out and, and spread exponentially. And uh, there's some rather astonishing predictions about how quickly the entire galaxy could be populated in this sort of a way. Certainly uh, less than the age of the galaxy. And I've heard anywhere from uh, one, uh, mil a million to a few millions of years down to, get this, a hundred thousand years, which is pretty remarkable if you think about it because the, the galaxy itself, its diameter is 100,000 light years across. Now, um, what's great about Wiley here in this article is that he's addressing the, the von Neumann problem straight on because he's like, basically saying like, if you're going to deal with the Fermi paradox and you're, and you're going to ignore the potential for self-replicating probes, well, then you are, your, your, uh, your assertion or any kind of conclusion you're making is going to be grossly inadequate. You've, you've got to deal with this. You've got to explain, okay, why is it? Why is it that we observe a galaxy in which von Neumann probes aren't everywhere, in which it hasn't completely reworked the galaxy? So that's kind of like a, for him a starting point, and I, I actually agree with him. I think he's, he's right on the money here. And it's also refreshing to read a, pa a paper that acknowledges how the Fermi paradox, it's a conundrum that's deepening over time. I'm always surprised at the willingness of a lot of smart and well-intentioned thinkers to simply brush this issue under the carpet and pretend that the great silence is not a problem worth tackling. So I'm going to read you the abstract to Wiley's paper just to give you a sense as to what it's all about, and I highly encourage you, if you're interested in this particular topic, to dig a little deeper. So, quote, It has been widely acknowledged that self-replicating probes, or SRPs, could explore the galaxy very quickly relative to the age of the galaxy. An obvious implication is that SRPs produced by extraterrestrial civilizations should have arrived in our solar system millions of years ago, and furthermore, that new probes from an ever-arising supply of civilizations ought to be arriving on a constant basis. The lack of observations of such probes underlies a frequently cited variation of the Fermi paradox. We believe that a predilection for ETI optimistic theories has deterred consideration of incompatible theories. Notably, SRPs have virtually disappeared from the literature. In this paper, 
we consider the most common arguments against SRPs and find those arguments lacking. By extension, we find recent models of galactic exploration which explicitly exclude SRPs to be unfairly handicapped and unlikely to represent natural scenarios. We also consider several other models that seek to explain the Fermi paradox, most notably percolation theory and two societal collapse theories. In the former case, we find that it imposes unnatural assumptions which likely render it unrealistic. In the latter case, we present a new theory of interstellar transportation bandwidth which calls to question the validity of societal collapse theories. Finally, we offer our thoughts on how to design future SETI programs which take the conclusions of the paper into account to maximize the chance of detection. End quote. And again, that was the abstract to Wiley's paper. A couple things come to mind when I read that. Um, he did mention in the paper as well that, uh, again, one possible explanation is that, yeah, the probes actually are everywhere. They're just sitting, they're just sitting idle waiting for some kind of instruction or some kind of uh, bit of, you know, uh, of information to become active and do whatever it is that it needs to do. Kind of like how uh, the von Neumann probe in, um, uh, was in 2001 where it was sitting in the moon and waiting for uh, humans to discover it, at which point it turned itself on. So that's kind of an example of a, of, a, of a von Neumann probe that's waiting for some kind of further action. And the other thing that I'm really uh, excited to see here is that he's, he's addressing um, what he calls societal theories and dismissing them. And this is one thing that um, uh, is kind of crucial when discussing Fermi paradox issues and SETI issues, is we need to avoid sociological explanations uh, when trying to reconcile the Fermi paradox, mostly because that tends to violate non-exclusivity. And what I mean by that is if you're looking, if you're trying to explain why the galaxy isn't overrun by ETs right now, you tend to get these kinds of solutions that are like, oh, you know, the zoo hypothesis, or they wouldn't find us interesting, or this is they wouldn't want to do this, they wouldn't want to do that, they do this, they do that. These are all kind of sociological, cultural um, imperatives, and they're not necessarily scientific. What needs to happen are, or what needs to be posited rather, are explanations that are uh, that don't violate non-exclusivity, which kind of means that okay, I can understand that one extraterrestrial civilization would, let's say, want to invoke a uh, uh, a prime directive type of a, of a policy, but could we assume that every one of them would invoke a prime directive policy? Like, again, I can see how one might. I can see how maybe even 99% might, but how could 100% of uh, ETIs agree on a kind of sociological policy? So again, that, that's, these are non-scientific questions. So rather, the kinds of questions we should be asking instead is, what are the hard limits of physical science? of chemistry, of, of, uh, of physics, of energy, of computation. What kinds of limits are, you know, are, are preventing perhaps uh, the kind of, uh, you know, exploratory, um, uh, kind of uh, well, preventing the kind of, again, outreach that we think ex extraterrestrials are capable of having just simply through our own conjecture and theorizing. So definitely um, a very neat paper. And uh, there's also a good review by Carl Schrader um, in his own on his own blog. Again, links are on my website. And uh, I thought I'd uh, thought I'd throw in uh, his quote because he's got some really nice observations uh, himself. So here's Carl Schrader on the Wiley paper. Quote: As possible explanations dwindle, we are being drawn inexorably toward the one explanation that is no explanation that we really are alone. Why should this be? As Wiley shows, all it would take would be one alien species with our capabilities appearing somewhere in the past couple of billion years. And for that species to surpass where we are now technologically by, oh, say, a couple of hundred years, 
and the evidence for their existence should be present right here in our own solar system. It's an astonishing conclusion. So, are we alone? Well, there is one other possibility at this point. I've lately been trumpeting my revision of Clark's Law, which originally said any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. My revision says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature. Astute readers will recognize this as a refinement and further advancement of my argument in permanence. Basically, either advanced alien civilizations don't exist, or we can't see them because they are indistinguishable from natural systems. I vote for the latter. This vote has consequences. If the Fermi paradox is a profound question, then this answer is equally profound. It amounts to saying that the universe provides us with a picture of the ultimate endpoint of technological development. In the great silence, we see the future of technology, and it lies in achieving greater and greater efficiencies, until our machines approach the thermodynamic equilibria of their environment, and our economics is replaced by an ecology where nothing is wasted. After all, SETI is essentially a search for technological waste products, waste heat, waste light, waste electromagnetic signals. We merely have to posit that successful civilizations don't produce such waste, and the failure of SETI is explained. As to why we haven't found any alien artifacts in our solar system, well, maybe we don't know what to look for. Wiley cites Friedus as having come up with some with this basic idea. I'm prepared to take it much further, however. End quote. And again, that's from Carl Schrader. Okay, some news for you along these lines. Uh, I am a collaborator with Bielan Sukovich and uh, Robert Bradbury, the late great Robert Bradbury. Our paper is just about to be published in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. This, In fact, after I'm done recording this podcast, I have to do my last run-through of the article, the last proof before uh, we decide to uh, release it for publication. It, it has already been approved. We're just now getting down to the uh, the cleaning up, making sure the citations are all accurate and clean and conform to standards, etc. That's the boring work when it comes to putting papers together. But I'll give you guys a sneak preview of this thing. And I think I think we started on this two years ago. I was just thinking about this. It might even be longer than two years ago, which is crazy. This has been quite a quite a production. And the name of our paper is Dysonian Approach to SETI, a fruitful middle ground. And here's our abstract. Quote We critically assess the prevailing currents in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, embodied in the notion of radio searches for intentional artificial signals as envisioned by pioneers such as Frank Drake, Philip Morrison, Michael Papagianis, and others. In particular, we emphasize, one, the necessity of integrating SETI into a wider astrobiological and future studies context. Two, the relevance of and lessons to be learnt from the anti-SETI arguments, in particular Fermi's paradox, and three, a need for complementary approach, which we dub the Dysonian SETI. It is meaningfully derived from the inventive and visionary ideas of Freeman J. Dyson and his imaginative precursors like Konstantin E. Sokolovsky, Olaf Stapleton, Nikola Tesla, or John B.S. Haldane, who suggested macro-engineering projects as the focal points in the context of extrapolations about the future of humanity and, by analogy, other intelligent species. We consider practical ramifications of the Dysonian SETI and indicate some of the promising directions for future work. End quote. And again, that is our abstract. Basically what we're saying, SETI is at date. They're looking for the wrong things and in the wrong way that given what we know now as futurists as to where we might be headed as a species, 
that we need to take a more future studies approach to SETI and not look for just radio signals and silly things like that, which are probably impossible to detect anyways. What we need to be looking for are artifacts and signs of advanced civilizations, things like Dyson spheres, things like uh, artifacts or any kind of signal that would indicate the presence of a sophisticated, post-singularity machine-type intelligence. That's what we should be doing. And that's essentially what we argue in this paper. Again, not published yet. I'm hoping uh, the next quarter of the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society, at which point I will release this thing to the, uh, to the interwebs, and you can check it out and read it yourself. Uh, so exciting times. It's going to be very exciting to get a paper published in that particular prestigious journal. I think everybody hates mosquitoes, and I think everybody, when they start to look more into what mosquitoes are and what they're all about, hates them even more when you realize what kind of a scourge they are, uh, in, you know, in, in terms of their impact on the human species. And uh, caught this article in Gizmag, where they basically reveal that things like, you know, of course, like war, plague, famine, heart disease, cigarettes, road trauma, whatever, these are obviously very effective killers of humanity. But they are relative amateurs when it comes to the mass, the number one mass murderer of all time, and that is the humble mosquito. And, of course, the diseases that it carries. And uh, it's been estimated that mosquitoes are responsible for as many as 46 billion deaths over the history of our species. Can you believe that? 46 billion deaths. And that's a number that's uh, more frightening when you kind of look at it in context, which means that mosquitoes have probably killed more than half of the humans that have ever lived. So this uh, this this tiny tiny little bug, um, it's it deserves that kind of full force of the wrath of humanity. And uh, there's a species in particular, the uh, Aedes aegypti mosquito. It's the world's number one disease vector for the deadly dengue fever, and that infects between 50 and 100 million people a year around the world. And uh, it evolved uh, the most curious, and, and, and it's innocuous of obviously the human predators, and it's the females that bite, and they more or less only feed on humans. And each bite exposes the victim to any, any blood-borne pathogens that the mosquito might have picked up along the way. And dengue and yellow fevers are among the most common that the mosquito contacts. Um, and uh, that's uh, what we have to kind of deal with. And now... Again, the problem with Aegypti as well, it flies so silently. Anyway, anyone knows this who's been stung or bitten by a mosquito, it's, uh, you, don't, you don't even really see it coming. Actually, you know you've been bit. So now that we're getting into genetically modifying organisms and our biotechnologies are getting more and more advanced, it's no surprise that we're starting to think about dealing with this and wondering, can we actually modify mosquitoes in a way that might be uh, a, a little better for our species? And uh, there is a kind of genetic hacking solution that's been put forward by the American scientist Anthony James from UC Irvine. 
And uh, he has, in fact, made mosquito genetics the focus of his career. And his latest invention is a genetically modified mosquito that's designed to bring population of Aedes aegypti down from within. So here's what he does. In short, the modified genes only affect the female mosquitoes. It renders them flightless. The larvae hatch on the water, and the females are unable to leave, rendering them harmless to humans and leaving them to die. The males are unaffected, so they mature normally, then mate with other females, but they pass the genetic modification on. This is an extremely effective way of engineering or triggering a mosquito population crash. James and a number of his colleagues have proven in cage-based testing in Mexico that a sufficient number of genetically hacked males can completely decimate a mosquito population within a few months. So um, what's interesting as well is that um, this has not been limited to just cage-based testing as well. The uh, Luke Alfie, He's got a company called Oxitec, and uh, this was company was originally hired by James to design the flightless female genetic modification. He's already he's so confident in these uh, in what he's doing that he has actually taken uh, his these so-called genetic warriors uh, into the field, and he's conducted full scale full scale field tests in the wild. And the first release of gen- genetically modified mosquitoes in uh, 2009 killed an estimated 80 percent of the Aegypti population of the Grand Cayman Island of the, Car- of the Caribbean, which is a geographically isolated area. And more mutant autocidal mosquitoes have been released in Malaysia, and the technique is reportedly going into large-scale production in Brazil. So obviously you can see that these guys want to push this further and perhaps deal with uh, uh, this in some of the more um, sensitive areas of the world, like in Africa, where dengue fever and yellow fever are more, are more prevalent. So of course it's kind of uh, I mean, this obviously brings the question as to uh, the the ethical component to it. Uh, there's a couple of things. One most significantly is uh, what are the environmental impacts of eliminating or significantly reducing the mosquito population? And what I find particularly interesting here and fascinating is that unlike virtually every other species, it may actually be the case that the the ver- the the, uh, the, uh, the absolute eradication of the mosquito may not have any adverse environmental effects. Uh, it's thought, of course, that a lot of fish and, and uh, bats and other animals uh, prey on mosquitoes. But uh, the thinking is, is that not to the degree that uh, you know results in these kinds of uh, sustaining populations. Like, you don't have an organism, a species that is 100% dependent on consuming uh, mosquitoes en masse. It may very well be that the mosquito is the is one species that we can we can absolutely eradicate. And I really think we should we should seriously consider this. I mean, it's one thing we, we often think how good would it be to eliminate diseases like smallpox and other ones. We don't worry about that kind of selective extinction of an organism. I think similarly, we could and should start to think along the lines of more macro scale organisms and think along the lines of eliminating entire species of insect, for example. Should we be able to prove, and this obviously this has to be proven somehow, that the elimination of the mosquito won't cause some kinds of negative effects uh, could unleash, for example, something even more nastier. We don't know, but we definitely need to look into it only because it's such a, a problematic uh, species in terms of its, uh, what it's done both in the past and certainly in the present. So we'll see what they do. going to keep my eye on this particular issue.
Now, much to my surprise, I've become a bit of a zombie junkie, and uh, I enjoy the uh, the Walking Dead television show and zombie films in general. And I could probably watch Shaun of the Dead endlessly. I love that movie. And I've been intrigued and spooked by the genre's post-apocalyptic visions of a humanity overrun by a mysterious virus that brings the dead back to life, only to stalk the living. Well, it doesn't necessarily speak to the kind of speculative fiction that I normally enjoy, it does offer some food for thought as far as the science is concerned. It got me thinking, you know, could such a thing actually ever happen? Moreover, given the potential power of future technologies, could a zombie virus be deliberately engineered? So, and, so I gave this a bit of thought, and the more I thought about it, I thought, actually, you know what? It probably could be done. So according to the zombie canon, it's a virus called Solanum that is responsible for converting the living to the undead. And if you check out the zombie survival guide, the virus works by traveling through the bloodstream from the original point of entry to the brain, where it uses the cells of the frontal lobe for replication, destroying them in the process. During this period, all bodily functions cease, and the infected subject is eventually pronounced, quote-unquote, dead. The brain remains alive, but dormant, while the virus mutates its cells into a completely new organ. Once the mutation is complete, this new organ reanimates the body, but typically to a form that bears little resemblance to the original corpse. Some bodily functions remain constant, Others operate in a modified capacity, and the remainder shut down completely. The result of this transformation is, of course, the zombie, a member of the living dead. But it doesn't stop there. The reanimated corpse develops an insatiable appetite for human flesh, the brain in particular. It is through the relentless stalking and attacking of the living that zombies attempt to satiate their appetites while spreading the virus to their surviving attack victims. Solonum is 100% communicable and 100% fatal. While the virus is neither waterborne nor airborne, infection can only occur through direct fluidic contact. A zombie bite is the most common vector for transferring the virus, but it's not the only one. Humans can be affected by brushing their open wounds against those of a zombie or being splattered by its remains after an explosion. As for the zombies, there is no cure. Nor can their relentless thirst for the living be quenched. They are single-purpose automatons, stalking the living until their bodies have completely rotted away or their brains destroyed. Now, of course, this sounds rather fantastical. It's the stuff of cheesy horror flicks, but the concept is not as outlandish as it might appear. Natural selection has, quite disturbingly, produced a number of viruses that, for all intents and purposes, turn their hosts into virtual zombies. Take, for example, mind-controlling parasites. I'm sure you've heard of them. These are the viruses and simple organisms that evolved such that they can alter the behavior of their hosts. Essentially, they cognitively re-engineer their victims, turning them into their transmission vectors. And it's not uncommon for organisms to leech off several different species in this way as part of their reproductive cycle. So take, for example, there's Plasmodium galseum. It's more commonly known as malaria. It's been known for some time that this protozoan uses mosquitoes as its vector. What has not been known until recently, however, is how malaria alters the blood-sucking behavior of mosquitoes. Malaria has had a significant impact on the evolution of mosquitoes and their behavior, much like flowers have contributed to the evolution of its pollinators, namely bees and other flying insects. Specifically, a mosquito will continue to search for victims until it reaches a threshold volume of blood. When it hits this threshold point, it stops host-seeking. It is thought that the stage-specific effect of the malaria parasite on host-seeking behavior is likely to be an active manipulation to increase its transmission success. 
And then you've got Duracelium dendricum, and that's a virus that primarily infects sheep, but it has a rather convoluted way of going about its reproductive business. First, adult worms lay eggs in the bile ducts of the sheep and are excreted. These eggs are in turn ingested by various species of land snails, and the eggs hatch in their digestive tracts. This hatching releases a compound that continues to change until it's released by the snail in the form of a slime ball. The slime ball is then eaten by ants. This eventually develops into a metasserae within the abdominal cavity of the ants, and here's where it gets interesting. Not that it hasn't been a riveting tale to this point. The ant's behavior is in turn altered such that it is compelled to climb to the very top of a blade of grass where it waits to get eaten by the sheep. The sheep eats the grass with the ant on it and subsequently becomes infected and the cycle is complete. Now take hairworms, which live inside grasshoppers. They eventually need to leave their hosts to continue their life cycle. Rather than leave peacefully, however, they release a cocktail of chemicals that makes the grasshoppers commit suicide by leaping into water. The hairworms then swim away from their drowning hosts. Nice, eh? Think humans are immune to mind-controlling parasites? Well, think again. It is suspected that Toxoplasma gondii, a parasite that is often contracted by humans from their cats, affect human psychology. Normally, the parasite works to manipulate rodents, but some scientists speculate that human cognition can also be altered. It is thought that those who are infected show a small tendency to be more self-reproaching and insecure. Less controversial are studies that have shown links between toxoplasma and schizophrenia. And, of course, there's rabies. And that's a disease with frightening parallels to solanum. Rabies is a viral disease that infects the central nervous system, causing acute encephalitis, which is inflammation of the brain, in warm-blooded animals. And it's most commonly transmitted by a bite from an infected animal, but occasionally by other forms of contact. As the disease progresses, symptoms include insomnia, anxiety, confusion, slight or partial paralysis, excitation, hallucinations, agitations, hypersalivation, difficulty swallowing, and hydrophobia, which is a, strangely a fear of water. Death usually occurs within days of the onset of these symptoms, but it's during the phase of agitation and excitation that those infected with rabies will attack anything and anyone, spreading the disease even further. Given that rabies kills around 55,000 people a year, mostly in Asia and Africa, yes, I said that, right, 55,000 people per year, it can be said that we are already in the midst of a zombie outbreak. Okay, so back to the point of the article, creating a zombie virus. Nature has come pretty darn close to creating a selenum virus of its own, which leads to the question, could we actually take the extra step of creating something that very closely approximates a zombie disease? And the answer is yes. And given recent advances in biotechnology and artificial life, such a disease could be right around the corner should someone want to create such a thing. Moreover, given future insights into the neurosciences and the inner workings of the brain, a potential zombie virus could be scripted in very specific and nefarious ways. Thanks to natural selection, we don't even have to start from scratch. We already possess the foundation for, for creating a mind-controlling parasite, rabies. In Venturesque fashion, we could make a genetic tweak here, a genetic tweak there, and create a virus that could be much more devastating than what nature created it. It would, for all intents and purposes, be rabies 2.0. 
it could also be made more contagious and induce a quicker onset of symptoms. The virus could also be engineered such that it would result in more specific host behavior. The virus could rework the areas responsible for volition, i.e. free will and action taking, and decision making while simultaneously rewiring the reward and moral centers of the brain. The sight of another human, for example, could create a sense of extreme hunger and consequently trigger an atavistic predatorial instinct. The feelings might even be accentuated by co-opting sexual desire. Frighteningly, it could also be transformed into an airborne virus, significantly increasing the likelihood of person-to-person -person transmission. Should we want to get more literal than just a rage-inducing virus, something that more closely resembles solanum, our malicious bioengineer would require some nanotechnology, specifically nanobots working in tandem with the brain bugs already described, and it could reanimate a corpse and work to maintain essentially, essential bodily functions, even though the brain is essentially dead. It's even possible that advances in regenerative medicine could allow for neurogenesis in which dead neurons are regenerated. Stem cells never sounded so evil. Now, stepping back a bit, would it be apocalyptic, though? Sure, it might be possible to create a zombie virus, but would such a thing have the same effects as it would in the movies? Would this be an apocalypse-inducing pandemic? Now, I actually think the answer, surprisingly, is no. As rabies has shown, animal-to-animal -animal transmission is quite containable. The spread of rabies, while persistent and pernicious, is easily identifiable and slow. Consequently, it has been all but eliminated in North America. And even if it somehow became airborne, it's an open question as to how quickly it would spread. We might very well be able to contain it. No virus is perfect. Even the Black Plague couldn't wipe out the mass of humanity. It killed between 30 and 60% of Europe's population. And sometimes viruses are too voracious for their own good. Take Ebola, arguably the nastiest of the viruses, which tends to be a little too efficient at killing its host. But, of course, I'm just speculating. I don't really know. Given the unique nature of zombies, such an outbreak could be a potential game-changer, and let's hope we never have to find out. All right, that's the show for this week. Thank you once again for tuning in to Sentient Developments. My name is George Dvorsky. You can check all these articles out on my blog, Sentient Developments, for further links and further information. If you want to touch base with me about any of these articles or anything that has to do with this podcast, you're welcome to email me at george at sentientdevelopments.com. Thank you once again for tuning in, and I will see you probably around next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye. Goodbye.